Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. You know, with all of our advantages in America of technology and the prosperity that we have, the increase in life expectancy, I, I read that my son's generation, their average life expectancy is, ex, uh, is supposed to be into the 90s. Imagine that. Uh, the comforts that we have, we're not roasting and sweating this morning. Thank the Lord somebody invented air conditioning in time for my lifetime. Uh, with all of these blessings that we have. Americans are not very happy. We're not very happy people. Um, recently in March, uh, in an article in Fast Times, uh, or Fast Company, excuse me, not Fast Times, like at Ridgemont High, uh, Fast Company, uh, Fast Company magazine, uh, there was an article that was entitled, America Desperate for Happiness is Getting Less and Less Happy. <clears throat> And here's how the article opened up. It said, for a country that prides itself on pursuing happiness, it's in the Declaration of Independence even, America isn't particularly happy in international terms. European nations regularly top the U.S. in surveys of happiness, showing how well-being isn't necessarily linked with economic growth. The report emphasizes how happiness isn't necessarily linked to economic growth, a decoupling first suggested in the 1970s and called the Easterlin Paradox. Incomes per person have now risen about three times since 1960 while measured happiness has failed to rise at all. In fact, the paradox is becoming more paradoxical than ever. Per capita GDP remains on the up, even if happiness is now actually falling, according to the latest data. In other words, we're becoming a wealthier nation. People are more wealthy than ever in the United States, having more material goods and more prosperity in the physical realm, yet we are less happy. The desire for happiness, the desire to have a fulfilled life is very real and it's a part of our created nature. We are created in the image of God, and God is perfectly happy, perfectly fulfilled. And so it's natural that we would yearn for this, yet it is something that we lost in the fall. In other words, it's not wrong to be happy, to be happy or to desire happiness. It really beats the alternative, doesn't it? Uh, so it's, it's, not, you know, it's not inappropriate for us to desire to be fulfilled and to have a happy life. The issue is the way we define happiness, the way we understand happiness and prosperity, the way that we have linked prosperity and fulfillment together and happiness together to prosperity. We've, we've not defined happiness and prosperity properly. It's, it's very one-dimensional. It's in the physical realm, the material realm. And we see happiness running through the path and running through the means of physical prosperity. 
And as that article points out, we can have all the physical prosperity in the world, yet remain supremely unhappy. This is why ultimately the prosperity gospel movement is going to fail, because it doesn't even understand what prosperity is according to God's Word and what happiness is according to God's Word. Now you might ask, what does happiness have to do with Psalm chapter 1? Well, you don't have to go past the very first word, the word blessed. It's the Hebrew word ashra. Its equivalent is the Greek word makarios, which we studied in depth last fall when we preached to the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall inherit the kingdom of God, Jesus says. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, the psalmist said. That word blessed is, is happy, it's, it's joyful, it's, it's a fulfillment. And, and both Jesus and the psalmist are both getting to the same point, that, that happiness and prosperity comes to someone from something outside of themselves, through the favor, through the grace, through the goodness of God. It's never going to come through physical means. It's not something that you can manipulate in that way. And it's something much more than a new car or a better house or a, a different toy or another career or a new spouse or whatever the case may be. Those do not, do not bring happiness. So Psalm 1 paints a picture of happiness and prosperity that I want us to really kind of chew on <clears throat> this morning. I want us to dig into it so that you have something to really think about this week. Uh, hopefully it will challenge maybe your understanding of happiness and maybe where you're looking for your happiness and for your fulfillment. Maybe it'll give you a different perspective on what it means to be prosperous this morning. Uh, we, let's, let's start with seeing, first of all, the significance of Psalm 1 within the Scriptures, within God's special revelation itself. You know, Psalm 1 has been a part of my life, it seems like, for as long as I almost have memories, because... Uh, in first grade in Mrs. Shrek's class at Trinity Christian Academy in Jacksonville, Florida. First month of class, first quarter, we all stood up in front of our parents at a ceremony and we quoted in unison Psalm chapter 1. And we learned it in the King James English. Right? Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, right? who, who standeth not in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he doth meditate day and night. And he is like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in his season. And his leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper." This next line I love, the, the ungodly are not so. They are like the chaff which the wind driveth away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord, for the Lord, for the Lord knoweth the way of the righteous but the way of the ungodly shall perish. 
I don't know exactly why Mrs. Shrek had us memorize that psalm, Psalm 1. But no doubt it's because it, it, it and Psalm 23 are the most popular of the psalms. Ransom preached to us when we opened up this series on the psalms, Psalm 23. And Psalm 1, Psalm 23, the most popular psalms, but I, I, maybe Mrs. Shrek didn't know this at the time, but now that I've had a little bit more understanding and knowledge and seminary and all that, the case could be made that of the two, Psalm 1 is actually the more significant of the psalms. Maybe the more important one, foundational, for several reasons, right? Well, first of all, within the context of the book itself, of the book of Psalms, it serves a very special purpose. Almost like a book that you have in a textbook or, or in any kind of book, there's a preface. Psalm 1 is very much like a preface psalm. It, it, it sets the stage for the rest of the book. The, the great Baptist preacher from the 1800s, Charles Spurgeon, was renowned for preaching through the book of Psalms. And he wrote several books. And he wrote a book called The Treasury of David. And he compared Psalm 1 to a sermon. He said, if the book of Psalms is God's sermon to God's people, it has all doctrine, like Luther said, all of the gospel, everything is in the book of Psalms. You can find it. And Spurgeon said, Psalm 1 is the sermon text. The rest of the Psalms is the sermon that is explaining and applying and teasing out and illustrating the sermon text, Psalm 1. It's just an amplification. All the, the other 149 Psalms are just an amplification and an explanation of Psalm chapter 1. If you look at it from a stylistic standpoint, it's genre, it's different than what we saw last week. Last week, Ben preached a phenomenal, it had the best, best sermon title on a Psalm I've ever heard. The worst Psalm ever. What a great sermon title, Ben. Great sermon title. Only surpassed by the sermon itself. If you haven't heard Ben's sermon from last week, you need to go online and watch it, listen to it. He introduced us to Psalm 88, and he taught us about lament. You see, there's different kinds of psalms, and there's different genres, and there's about six or seven. And last week, it was a, a lament psalm. And boy, it was dark, wasn't it? And it just ends, and, and, and it was just out there with all the raw emotion and anguish of the soul put out there. And, and Ben just did a great job. You need to watch that video if you, haven't, if you weren't here last week. But this psalm is not a lament psalm. This psalm is a wisdom psalm. It's, it's, it's like the book of Proverbs. It is God telling us how to live our lives in order to prosper, in order to be successful, in order to, to be happy and to have a fulfilled life. But as significant as those two things are, even more importantly in my mind is the theme of this psalm. And the theme of this psalm is significant because for the first time in the Bible, a message is given that is going to repeatedly occur. For the first time in the Bible, we're introduced to this idea that there are two groups of people, two ways, two different destinies. And this is a theme that will continue from this point on. And most famously, you hear Jesus using it in the Sermon on the Mount when he talks about there's a broad road and a narrow road. There's a, a broad gate and a narrow gate. On the broad road, it's filled with people who are going to destruction. The narrow road, there's few that are on it, but it leads to eternal life. This theme of two roads and two destinies and two groups of people for the first time is introduced in the Bible here in Psalm chapter 1. 
and it's something that will be picked up on over and over again. Jeremiah takes this psalm and, and he expands it and teases it out wonderfully. In Jeremiah chapter 17, he says, thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream that does not fear when heat comes for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought for it does not cease to bear fruit. Do you see how he's taken Psalm 1 and verse 3 and, and kind of expanded it and given us a different flavor? This is a significant psalm and for a number of reasons. So let's take a closer look at it. You know, a couple of summers ago, <clears throat> I spent my summer in the Psalms, and uh, now we're doing it, and so to speak. And, and you know, one of the things that I did that summer when I was on sabbatical is I read no other scripture really but the Psalms. And one of the things I did was I, I got a fresh journal. And as I would read through the Psalms and maybe take one or two a day, I would, I would write down a verse or two that, that spoke to me and that was ministering to my heart. Remember when we started this series, I said, you can find yourself in the Psalms no matter where you're at. If you're anxious, if you're happy, if you're sad, if you're depressed, if you're confused, if you're frustrated, if you're sorrowful, even if you're suicidal, you know, if it's that bad in your life, you can find help in the Psalms. It's, it's that wonderful of a book. And so as I went through that, the, the book of Psalms, I was jotting verses down. And, and, and one of the practices that I made is as I would read a chapter, I would try to summarize what was the point? What was God telling me, speaking to me from this chapter or from that Psalm? What did he want to, to get across to me so that I was getting the flavor of that Psalm? And so I, I did a similar exercise with Psalm 1 for us this morning, and, and I want to use it to kind of springboard as we walk through the passage. Why don't you read it out loud with me, would you? In unison, let's read it. My happiness is determined by the allegiances of my heart and how those loyalties are affirmed or denied in my daily life. My happiness is determined by the allegiances of my heart and how those loyalties or how those allegiances are lived out in the positive or the negative in a, in a daily manner. That's going to determine my happiness as the Bible defines happiness. Now let's, let's explain that. As we look in this passage of Scripture, the first thing that we see is that there are two paths before everyone. Every one of us have two paths before us, and these two paths determine the quality of our life. They're going to determine whether we live happy, fulfilled, prosperous lives or not. And the psalmist he introduces these two paths in a rather ingenious way. In verse 1, he says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scoffers. And, and what he does here is very clever. 
In the very first verse, in the very first few words, he puts both paths before us. We have a blessed man, a happy, fulfilled, content, joy-filled man. We know that's one category, and now we know there's another category because he contrasts him against a negative. He immediately puts him against the backdrop of a negative who walks not with another group of people, those who are the wicked or the sinners or the scoffers. What we have going on here is a Hebrew poem, right? Psalms are poems. These are the poetic books. But Hebrew poetry is different than English poetry. It doesn't rhyme. It doesn't rely upon its poetry for rhyming words. It does it through structure, and it does it through parallelism. And we have both of these at play here. By structure, what we mean is something that I introduced to you last summer when we went through the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, you have a chiasm at play. And an chiasm in, in Hebrew poetry, you'll see a, a tendency. You'll have like concept number one, and then concept number two, and then concept number three might be the middle of the poem. And then as you work your way to the end, it goes backwards. It will then go concept number two, and it'll end with concept number one. That structure is what we call a chiasm. And you even see that here. In the very first verse, you see the man of God disassociating himself, distancing himself from the wicked, from those who reject God. And in verse 6, you don't see the man of God, you see God himself distancing himself, disavowing himself from those who reject God and the way of God. This is the, the bookends of this poem. And in the middle, a description of the godly and the ungodly person. You see parallelism, and parallelism is a key characteristic of Hebrew poetry. And right off the bat, you have sets of three in the very first verse, right? Here you have this blessed man, and what do you see about him? He doesn't walk, he doesn't stand, he doesn't sit, right? There's a group of three, and the counsel in the way in the seat of scoffers. You see parallelism everywhere. What does he do? He is like a tree planted by the rivers of water that giveth forth its fruit in its season. There's one idea, and then a parallel is what? And his leaf also doesn't wither, and everything he does prospers. So parallel ideas uh, in put in together is a characteristic of Hebrew poetry. And this Psalm 1 is filled with parallelism. This parallelism in verse 1, though, is highly significant. Because when you look at it and the progression of it as it describes this first path, he does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of the scoffers. This parallelism describes a path that ends in a particular place. It's the place of the scoffer. The scoffer. Now, let me ask you a question this morning. I want you to think in your mind. I want you to think in your mind the most scandalous sin that if somebody asks you, what is the sin that you hope you never ever commit? In your mind, what is that sin? Okay? You got it? Nod, nod your head. You got it? Come on. Nod your head. You got it? This, aisle, this section here is not nodding your head. Do you? Okay, good. All right, just making sure you're awake. Good. All right. What is that sin? Turn to the person next to you. Tell them what it is. Go ahead. Tell them what it is. 
<laughs> Some of you don't want to say, okay, don't, don't, don't worry, okay, all right. Okay, how many of you, uh, let's just do it like this. How many of you, it was like murder? Raise your hand. Okay, yeah, a lot of murder here, okay? Uh, I won't make you raise your hand if you said adultery or something like that, or so, but some of you did raise your hand. All right, a lot of you probably, how many of you, let's just say, how many of you in some way or another, when you think of a scandalous sin, it has something to do with sex? Raise your hand. Yeah, okay, good. Uh, maybe adultery. There's a lot of us who are married, I don't ever want to cheat on my wife. I don't ever want to betray my wife, right, or my husband. Maybe it was uh, defrauding, it was robbery, it was crime of some kind. How many of you thought scandalous sin? Oh, I hope that I am never a scoffer. Raise your hand. Yeah, okay. Scoffer. One person, smartest person in the building, or else it's because he's picked up on Psalm 1 and knew where I was going. He's cheating, right? No. Do you know why this is important to get? Because if you put a murderer, an adulterer, a, a blasphemer, and a scoffer all in the same room, the person who is furthest away from repentance is the scoffer. Because you can be a murderer and repent. You can be an adulterer, you can be a blasphemer, you can be arrogant, you can be proud, you can be a robber, you can be a drug dealer, you can be any number of things, and you can, be, you can repent from those sins, right? But if you are a scoffer, you are the furthest person away from repentance in that entire room. Because a scoffer holds the truth of God, the way of God, the goodness of God in contempt. Doesn't believe it. You see, David was a murderer. David was an adulterer. But David was not a scoffer. So when he was confronted with the truth of God's word, he was convicted and he repented. A scoffer, when he is confronted with the word of God, he doesn't repent. He laughs at it. He scorns it. He mocks it. And so this progression here on this, of this way ends with someone who never repents. And the word seat, he sits in the seat of the scoffer. That is so significant because in the Middle Eastern, in the ancient world, who you sat with is who you identified with. One of the reasons why the Pharisees criticized Jesus was he, that he sat with the Gentiles and with the sinners. And to sit with them was to identify with them to say they're part of my tribe, they're part of my group, they have my allegiance and my loyalty. And so when you sit with the scoffers, you're saying, these are my people, they have my allegiance and loyalty, they're who I belong to. So this very first path is extremely significant because when you're on this path, you're saying my loyalty, my allegiance, who I identify with are those groups of people who totally reject the truth of God. The second path is the path of the blessed person. It's in verse 2, right? But his delight is in the law of the Lord. His delight, in other words, what has captured his heart, what has the allegiance of his heart. Remember, my happiness is determined by the allegiances of my heart. What has the loyalty of his heart is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates day and night. The law there is not just the Ten Commandments or, you know, those, those really, you know, the blood and all those liquid laws in the Leviticus. And that. It's, it's the law here is the entire word of God. 
For us, this means from Genesis to Revelation, it's the revealed will of God through his word. On his law, he meditates day and night. I love that word meditate. You know what it literally means? It means he chews the cud. He chews the cud. Now let's be honest with here this morning. How many of you, when I say chew the cud, have absolutely no idea what I'm talking about? Raise your hands. You poor city slickers, okay? <laughs> All right. <laughs> Anybody who's been around a farm, you know exactly what I'm talking about. A cow chooses cud, right? He, he chews, he, he takes in grass or hay, and he, he digests it. He puts it in one stomach, but he's not done yet, right? He brings it back around, and he chews on it again, and he moves it to another stomach, and he progresses this way. He's getting everything out of that substance that he possibly can to nourish his body. And the blessed man, this is what he does with the law of God, with the word of God. He just chews on it and chews on it and brings it back around and brings it back around and brings it back around, delighting in its flavor and what it does for him. It's what we see in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. You shall teach them diligently the words of God's law to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way. And when you lie down and when you rise, there's a picture of meditation. You know, this verse kind of creates some tension for some of us, right? The word law and delight, do those two words go together? Do you delight in law? I mean, I delight in grace, but do I delight in law? C.S. Lewis was troubled by this. And his book, or essays, Reflections on the Psalms, he had problems with this because, you know, as he said, law is something that you obey. Law is something that you submit to. But how do you delight in the law? He grappled with this, and he finally came to a resolution in this way. He said, the order of the divine mind embodied in the divine law is beautiful. What should a man do but try to produce it as far as possible in his daily life? And in other words, what Lewis was saying is the law, the word of God, it reveals the person of God. It reveals the mind of God, the attributes of God. And when we see God in his word in this way, he is beautiful and he is delightful. And Lewis is right, but I would suggest he doesn't go far enough because the law, the law of God in its entirety also reveals something else. It also reveals the plan of God relative to our redemption. It gives us the good news of how God has designed and carried out and implemented our salvation. And when we meditate upon the gospel, it's a delight. It, it grows within us and our allegiances and our loyalties are strengthened and it refreshes our soul. Tim Keller has, has written that only the gospel and, and meditating on the gospel and singing it into our hearts and preaching it to ourselves and bringing it back around throughout the day as we interact with life itself, that only the gospel has the ability at the same time to make us the happiest and the most sorrowful people in the world. Only the gospel can do this. It makes us more sorrowful because as we meditate 
on the gospel and on the law of God, we become more sensitive, become more sensitive to our brokenness. We become more sensitive to our need for the gospel to restore us, to heal us, to change us. And just when we think we have our act together and we've arrived, if we're truly meditating on the gospel, God says, okay, here's another room of the house. Now it's time to clean this room. (laughs) You thought I was done, not even close. And the more you meditate on the gospel, the more sensitive you become to your own sin and your own brokenness, the more you find yourself falling back on a passage like Ben gave us in the, our, our singing in our worship time, Hebrews chapter 4, having to come before the throne of grace and fall upon the mercy of God and cry out, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. The things that I want to do, I don't do. Give me the grace to do that which I want to do. And it can break your heart. It can break your heart as you look at your own life. It breaks your heart as you look at the city that we live in and you see the masses that are relying upon false gods and false ways and false paths for happiness and fulfillment. And you know, you know that the end thereof is destruction. And it breaks your heart. And at the same time, we can be the happiest people because we know through the gospel that every one of those sins that we now see, maybe more than ever before as we grow, everyone's been paid for. Everyone has been put under the blood of Jesus Christ. And God loves us with such an infinite, unending love that we can't even begin to measure, that we've been accepted, that our identity is in Jesus Christ, that we don't have to earn it. It's been earned for us, that we can enjoy the life that God has given us. We can enjoy all of the blessings and the grace and the favor that he pours out upon us, no matter how they may appear. And we can say, thank you, we have these things because Jesus has paid the penalty of our sins and one day we're going to live in perfection forever and ever we can be both the most sorrowful and the happiest people at the same time these two ways and these two ways lead to two very different destinies and this passage gives us a a painting of these destinies of what happens when one walks the right path compared to the wrong path The right path, he is like a tree. This person, this blessed man who does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the seat of the scornful whose delight is in the law of the Lord and in his law he doth meditate day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. You see, God does something to his people, doesn't he? He plants us with roots that run deep. He does this. He plants us in a way so that we are able to draw our nourishment not from ourselves, not from our activity and through our own good works, but from His Word, through His indwelling Spirit. 
the rivers of water in this passage is the very law of God, the Word of God. That's why we've been stressing this last ministry year and the upcoming ministry year, reading the Word of God together because the man of God, the woman of God, who has the Spirit of God, finds the Word of God to be that refreshing water, that meat that we need to eat, the milk that we need to drink so that we grow and are strong and we flourish. And God plants his people in soil so that these roots will grow deep and they tap into this water and what results is fruit. Even during difficult times, there's fruit. You see, folks, and get this very clearly, happiness, happiness, it is not dependent upon our bank accounts. It is not dependent upon our circumstances. Psalm 1 is getting to a point that happiness is totally separate from our circumstances. Happiness is directly tied upon our identity, where we are planted, where we are drawing our nourishment. If we are relying upon the things of this world to bring us happiness, and fulfillment, if our identity, if my loyalty is to my career, if my allegiance is, is to something that is external in this world, then I will never, ever be happy and fulfilled. I'll have emotional highs when I buy that new Mercedes or I get that new person, or that new promotion, or that new job, or this, that, or that, or whatever it may be that floats your boat. But it will be fleeting, it will be temporal, and you will go, now what? Because we're relying upon circumstances. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. Even when there's drought, even when there's heat, even when there's fiery trials, and cancer comes into your life, or in the life of the one that you love, when you're planted in your identity and your loyalty and your allegiance is to this Lord, you bear fruit. It's not fun. You see, happiness in the Bible is oftentimes accompanied with tears, isn't it? Our Lord Jesus was the perfect blessed man who did not walk in the counsel of the wicked or stand in the way of sinners nor sit in the seat of the scoffer. He was the perfect, happy, fulfilled man, yet he was a man acquainted with grief and sorrow. Happiness doesn't mean there isn't sorrow. Prosperity doesn't mean there isn't tears. But biblical happiness and prosperity means that when these things come into our life, we don't wither. We cry, we mourn, we grieve. As Paul says, we're pressed down, we're distressed. We may be abused, but we are not broken. 
We are not forsaken. We will prosper. The wicked are not so. Their destiny is very different. They are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous. What's the destiny of the wicked? They are the chaff. Listen to me, my friend. If you are here this morning and you do not know Christ, the Lord Jesus, as your personal Savior, your destiny is that of the chaff. The chaff was the useless, worthless part of the harvest. They would throw the, the harvest up into the wind and the, the grain, because it was heavier, would fall back to the threshing floor. But the worthless chaff, the, the stuff that was no good to eat, it, the wind would catch it and blow it away. And then the harvesters would all gather it up into bundles and then they would, what? They would burn it, destroy it. And the picture here of your destiny is that if you stay on this road, your destiny is to one day be gathered up. As Jesus says in Matthew 24, I will send my angels out and they will gather together my elect and all those who are not of my elect. Where do they go? They go into eternal separation from God. And if you're on that road, please I beg you, Repent. Turn to Christ. Trust in Him. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Dear people, people of God, delight, delight in how this poem ends. That word know there is not because God is omniscient and that he knows everything. This is not just objective knowledge. This is knowledge that God has because of a subjective love relationship that he has with us. It's the type of knowledge like that I have of my wife, Catherine, because we have been married in an intimate relationship for 29 years. I know her and she knows me because we have lived together and walked together for 29 years and she knows me better than in some cases than I know myself. And this is that intimate love that God has because before the foundations of the world, he determined that he was going to set his love on us. He knows us because he called us and he took on flesh. He knows us because he lived among us. He knows us because he took on our sin. He walked our life. He lived the pain of the human existence. He knows us because he can identify with every aspect of our life. He knows us because he did all of these things out of love. A love that he's had from eternity past that sent him to the cross. The Lord knows the way of the righteous for we have a high priest fully acquainted with our weaknesses who we can turn to. So this psalm forces us to ask some hard questions. By way of application, I want to give them to you by maybe in categories, maybe diagnostic category, an important diagnostic question for you this morning. Would you ask yourself a serious question? Three little words. Am I happy? Am I happy? Am I fulfilled? 
Even in the face of trouble, am I happy? Am I at peace? Am I fulfilled? How about a motivational type of question? Who do I identify with? What am I identifying with? Who, who has my allegiances, my loyalties? You see, if you're not happy and fulfilled, something else has our hearts. When I'm not happy and fulfilled, it's because I have put my loyalty and my allegiance in something other than the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel. If you're not happy this morning, if you're not fulfilled, it's because the motivation of your heart and the loyalties and the allegiance, you're sitting with something other than Jesus Christ. One final category. This is an ex existential question, maybe the most important question. Again, three, four words, excuse me. Does God know me? Does God know me? Has God planted me like a tree by the rivers of water? Or am I like the chaff that the wind drives away? If you don't know the answer to that question, I hope you'll come see me or you'll come see one of our counselors and spiritual advisors at the care center after the service. That's the most important question. I hope you can get it answered today. Father, thank you for planting us. And Lord, for the person maybe here this morning who isn't planted, would you create in them a desire, a heart that just yearns for Jesus, for true happiness and fulfillment that only he can bring. For the Christian, Lord, who's struggling, how fickle our hearts can be, how we can turn our loyalties and our allegiances to other things and rest trust in them rather than the one thing that can bring peace and happiness. Give us the grace that we need to see this area of, of sin. May we repent and turn to the only one who can give us contentment, fulfillment, and happiness. To his praise, I ask these things. Amen.